This show is made possible by the support of the members of the show. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Rachel Maddow Show, La Show, The Daily Show, The Jimmy Dore Show, The Colbert Report, and Countdown with Keith Olbermann with a special bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Daily Show. Here is your first quote. We talk to these folks because they potentially have the best answers. So I know whose ass to kick. That was somebody on the Today Show doing his best to show how very, very mad he really is. Who? That would be President Obama. Yes, indeed. After weeks of pressure from the media, citizens, the left and the right, to finally show a little anger, Obama did it. He showed a little anger. Tiny little anger. This gesture was obviously a pathetic attempt to pretend the president was something he is not. It was like Dukakis going for a ride in that tank or, or George H.W. Bush saying he likes pork rinds or, or Bill Clinton getting married. Who was the last president we had who was a viable ass kicker anyway? Lyndon? Well, Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson and I used, put the boot in, I think, quite, quite legitimately. Teddy Roosevelt was an Teddy ass Roosevelt. Yeah, but that was, I mean, that's a long time ago. I yeah, think yeah. Lyndon was really the last. Yeah, he kicked bears, didn't he? <laughs> now Nixon would hire criminals to kick the exactly. ass. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting, though, is that now President Obama has crossed this line. He's going to go all the way. In fact, the president has started revisiting some of his more famous speeches from the past. He's going to try to make them more angry, more salty. We, we have some tape. Let's hear it. From coast to coast, from sea to shining sea, yes, we <laughs> can. We begin tonight with an announcement from the President of the United States. Not this one, I mean the last one. For years my administration has been calling on Congress to expand domestic oil production. Unfortunately, Democrats on Capitol Hill have rejected virtually every proposal. One of the most important steps we can take to expand American oil production is to increase access to offshore exploration on the outer continental shelf or what's called the OCS. Today I've issued a, more, a memorandum to lift the executive prohibition on oil exploration in the OCS. That was President George W. Bush in July 2008 lifting the presidential ban on offshore oil drilling in the outer continental shelf. It was a presidential ban that had been first put in place by President Bush's dad in 1990 after the big Exxon Valdez disaster in Alaska. Here was why Bush II said he was lifting the drilling ban of Bush I. Advances in technology have made it possible to conduct oil exploration in the OCS that is out of sight 
protects coral reefs and habitats, and protects against oil spills. See, the technology is so safe now, there's no need to worry about oil spills anymore. Now, as I mentioned, President George W. Bush here was rescinding the presidential drilling ban that his father had put in place after the Exxon Valdez disaster. He was sort of trying to box Congress in uh, into repealing Congress's drilling ban as well. Congress's ban was even older than the presidential ban. Congress's ban had been put in place starting in the early 1980s. With this action, the executive branch's restrictions on this exploration have been cleared away. This means that the only thing standing between the American people and these vast oil resources is action from the U.S. Congress. But Congress has restricted access to key parts of the OCS since the early 1980s. Well, why had Congress done that? Why had Congress restricted offshore drilling since the early 1980s? Ah, because of this. The Ixtoc oil well blowout in the Gulf of Mexico, it blew up in 1979. They did not cap it until well into 1980. It released an estimated 140 million gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. In trying to figure out what to do about that, Congress decided to put a moratorium on drilling in hundreds of thousands of acres of federal waters. Sorry, no more drilling. Did you see what just happened, people? After a huge spill like that, you can see how politicians at the time maybe might want to stop and, and reassess things for a while. After the big Ixtoc disaster, that's what Congress did. After the big Exxon Valdez disaster, that's what the first President Bush did. And after the most recent BP oil disaster in the Gulf, that's what President Obama has done, implementing a six-month moratorium on deep water oil drilling. Moratoriums on drilling are what we have done in the past to respond to big oil disasters. The idea, presumably, is that we're gonna make drilling safer before we allow it to expand again. And even though President Bush touted that supposed improved safety back in 2008 when he was lifting the presidential moratorium, we no longer have to take anyone's sober assurances about things like that. That issue has now been factually, conclusively settled. The oil industry in 2010 is proving conclusively, day after every single freaking day, that what they do is really not safe that they are routinely drilling at depths where they have no idea how to respond if anything goes wrong. They admit it now, in word and in deed, every single day. Tomorrow, BP plans to send down the containment dome to cover one of the two remaining leaks, but this has never been tried before at 5,000 feet under the sea. Rice University professor Satish Nagaraja says this has never been tried in water so deep. I hope it works. It, uh, it has not uh, been used at that depth before. And these vessels started the long-awaited top kill procedure this afternoon, a maneuver never tried before a mile beneath the sea. They've never attempted to put cement down at this depth. Something never been done at that depth before. We've got the junk shot method and we've also got another method which is to, uh, to put a valve on top of the existing system or a new blowout preventer. But again, you've never attempted any of these at this depth. That's right, Meredith, that's right. That's right. All, all, all of the techniques, the ones that sound good, the ones that sound dumb, the ones that sound made up, all of them, all of them that have been tried so far to stop the Deepwater Horizon BP oil disaster, all of them have never been tried before at this depth. Doesn't that make you wonder how many other American wells are out there right now where if something went wrong they couldn't fix it? 
Doesn't it kind of seem like a wake-up call that the safety technology has to get way better before it can ever again be considered safe to drill that deep? Not if you're an oil company. Here's Shell Oil in a posting on their website more than a month after the Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded, celebrating the world's deepest offshore oil platform, located 200 miles off the Texas coast. Woohoo! Top that! The oil industry has already proven it doesn't know how to deal with a spill at 5,000 feet. But here's Shell Oil bragging about their new well, which is moored in 8,000 feet of water. Hey, Ayn Rand fans! Hey, libertarians, if you were counting on the industry to police itself in the wake of the BP disaster, this is what that looks like. This BP oil disaster may have spooked all of us watching it at home, but it clearly has not spooked the industry. And it apparently hasn't spooked politicians who love the industry either. Republican Governor Haley Barber of Mississippi, who met with President Obama as he toured the Gulf today, pledged to deliver the message that Gulf Coast citizens want more deep water drilling. There's no reason for it to stop, he says. There's no reason for this totally unnecessary moratorium. We need to get to the bottom of it, find out what happened, make sure it doesn't happen again. But I think it is very reasonable to continue to drill. Don't you love this, we need to get to the bottom of this thing? We need to find out what happened. Here's a hint, Governor. The well blew out 5,000 feet below sea level. So they can't fix it. Oil companies don't know how to fix it when something goes wrong in really deep water, turns out. Which is my, maybe why they should have to figure that stuff out before they keep drilling in really deep water. You really need a study for this? This idea is really that mystifying to you? This episode is being sponsored by Audible. They're the world's largest resource for downloadable audio content like books, periodicals, premium podcasts, and more. For a limited time until June 30th, Audible is offering listeners of this show a free audiobook download of your choice. It's a pretty good deal. Simply visit audiblepodcast.com slash best. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best. And now, speaking of BP, and we will be for the next little while now. First of all, you know that uh, British Prime Minister uh, Cameron was at, uh, had a conversation with uh, the American President, Barack Obama, over the weekend. And... Um, we institute now a, a new feature of the broadcast, the Weasel Watch. Find the weasel words in this statement from uh, the Prime Minister's office. The Prime Minister expressed his sadness at the ongoing human and environmental catastrophe in Louisiana. The President and Prime Minister agreed that BP should continue to work intensively to ensure that all sensible and reasonable steps are taken as rapidly as practicable to deal with the catastrophe. So we wouldn't want any nonsensible and unreasonable steps to be taken, would we? And who would be the judge of what's sensible and reasonable and practical? I think our oil and fueling partners for the Olympics. Caribbean officials have told Hillary Clinton they are deeply concerned at the prospect of the Gulf of Mexico 
oil gush reaching their island's pristine beaches, according to the British newspaper The Telegraph, noting the very sobering analysis from Bahamian Foreign Minister T. Brent Simonet on what would happen if the oil reaches the powerful loop current, which would sweep the oil past Florida to the beaches of the Bahamas, Jamaica, and beyond. Clinton said, quote, we earnestly hope that does not happen. Unquote. Antigua's Prime Minister Baldwin Spencer noted the clear anxiety in the region about the spill smearing the shores, which drew, draw millions of tourists to the region each year. Of course, the new figure for the uh, amount of oil gushing out uh, is now up to 40,000, 50,000 barrels. Um, wasn't that close to what the unofficial estimates were by the crazy Internet people really early in this? Yes, it is. Clinton, um, Mrs. Secretary of State Clinton, admitted our, quote, our understanding of and preparation for dealing with a disaster like this is out of date, unquote. That's it. It's just dated. It's not screwed up. She said there was a need, quote, to start now to get better prepared to deal with something of this magnitude in the future. Many Caribbean countries rely on income from tourism to keep their economies afloat, like Florida. You may not have seen this. The independent newspaper uh, did a report on uh, a, an analysis of the spill by our old friend, friend of this broadcast, and uh, soon to be featured in the motion picture, The Big Uneasy, about why New Orleans flooded. Dr. Bob B. from the University of California, Berkeley, an expert on catastrophe analysis. So here's the independent. This was uh, a BP operation, but other companies were involved. There's no suggestion of wrongdoing by any of the companies mentioned so far. 120, uh, so, uh, some 79 employees worked for Transocean, the firm that owned and operated the rig. A further 41 worked for contractors such as Anadarko Petroleum, one of BP's partners on the well. There was also a firm called M.I. Swaco, or Swaco, a contractor for providing mud engineering services on the rig. Apparently they couldn't hold there. Two of his workers were among the 11 killed, sorry. Halliburton uh, had four staff on the rig and was responsible for cementing on the seabed. Another firm called Cameron International, in relation to the Prime Minister, supplied the rig's blowout preventer valves, which of course did not prevent the blowout. The best guide, according to the Independent, as to what went wrong is it contained in a report by the Deepwater Horizon Study Group led by Professor B. In his report, he itemizes seven steps which led to the blowout. Improper well design, improper cement design, no cement bond logs, no log, no, no paper logs of the operation of bonding the cement to the well, ineffective oversight of operations, bad decision-making, removing the pressure barrier, early warning signs not detected, analyzed, or corrected, improper operating procedures, Flawed design and maintenance of the final line of defense. B does not specify any company other than BP, but he does have harsh words to say about one other organization, the U.S. regulator in the area. He says, The information available to me so far indicates that BP and the Department of Interior's Minerals Management Service failed to properly assess and manage the natural hazards in a prudent manner. Consequently, the public resources and environment were and are being severely punished. I don't recall the U.S. ambassador to London pointing that out when he tried to smooth over relations today on BBC with the Brits. And, you know, oh, no, relations are fine. We love BP. They helped the Olympics. 
uh, further on this subject to uh, give you some some um, background on the fine work that BP does. I'm just turning this knob for a moment. And then we get to this. From the non-profit journalism site ProPublica, a series of investigations over the past decade warned senior BP managers that the oil company repeatedly disregarded safety and environmental rules and risked a serious accident if it did not change its ways. The confidential inquiries, which have not been previously made public, focused on a rash of problems at BP's Alaska drilling operations. They described instances in which management flouted safety by neglecting aging equipment, pressured employees not to report problems, and cut short or delayed inspections to reduce costs. Well, we wanted to save money. Similar themes about BP operations elsewhere were sounded in interviews with former employees in lawsuits and little-noticed state inquiries and in emails obtained by ProPublica. Taken together, these documents portray a company that systematically ignored its own safety policies across its North American operations from Alaska to the Gulf of Mexico. Executives were not held accountable for the failures. Some were promoted despite them. Sounds like the Corps of Engineers. You guys should work together. Under Tony Hayward... Since uh, 19, uh, since 2007, chief executive of BP, the company has worked to implement an operating safety system to create, quote, responsible operations at every BP operation, says a spokesman. BP has used the system at 80% of its operations and expects to bring it to the rest by the end of the year. Because of its string of accidents before the blowout in the Gulf, BP pay, faced a possible ban on federal contracting and on new U.S. drilling leases, according to according to several senior former EPA officials. That inquiry has taken on new significance. One key question the EPA will consider is whether the company's leadership can be trusted. Yeah, good question. And whether BP's culture can change. A, um, a possible hint about that comes from this. This is uh, Tony Hayward, who... It would seem the one piece of PR advice he has taken and taken to heart is, you're in America, babe, talk slow. So here is the slowest talking Brit in North America, Tony Hayward, being interviewed uh, on Fox News on May 20th of this year regarding whether, well, just how much oil is spewing from the well. There is no accurate way of estimating this. I'm afraid there clearly is not a meter on the seabed, uh, so what you have to do is estimate what is on the surface, which itself is something of a, a, an estimation, and then back calculate based on the amount of oil that evaporates and is dispersed as it travels up through the sea column. So, you know, the, the numbers are, are genuinely guesstimates at this point. What we can say is that the containment efforts of subsea dispersant dispersant deployed on the surface, skimming on the surface, and booming on the surface, is retaining the vast majority of the oil in the vicinity of the leak. Well, of course, that, that didn't turn out to be true. But there's no way to know how much oil is coming out, said Tony Hayward, May 20th. This, from BP's own magazine, Frontiers, August 2008. To tackle the industry-wide problem of flow measurement, 
Engineers in BP set out a few years ago to develop a more reliable and cost-effective method for continuously metering hydrocarbon flows. BP had a vision that a different technique, that of sonar-based measurement, could hold the answer to this, says Nicholas Morlino, research and development program manager with BP in Houston. From our in-depth knowledge of flow measurement methods built up over many years, we know that sonar flow measurement is not so readily affected by the presence of small percentages of liquids or gases. And the way sonar metering technology works meant it could be achievable without inserting anything into the flow itself. It's cost-effective to install a meter on every well to allow us to monitor them all continuously to provide us with a picture of which wells to focus on for optimizing oil production. Other companies have now begun to use the meters, but BP is leading the way. It appears that measuring hydrocarbon flows may be less problematic in the future thanks to BP's creative vision for sonar flow measurement. BP has now deployed the meters in its refineries in the U.S. and sees numerous applications in its wider downstream operations. Installation of the meter by clamping it onto a pipe takes only around an hour. BP has already deployed around 45 sonar flow meters around its operations. But there's no way to know how much oil is flowing because we don't have a meter down there. So, could you, yes, the question is, do you, can you, can you uh, trust the management to change the culture? And uh, those skimmers are working very well now. Uh, Tony will be, uh, I think, meeting, Tony Hayward will be meeting with uh, the president later this week. And, uh, uh, yes, and we'll be uh, talking even more slowly then. Gulf of Mexico, BP, British Petroleum, continues to work night and day to plug the leak. No, not that leak. <laughs> this one. Look at where this stock price is. As you mentioned, it's lost more than half of its value since the spill happened 52 days ago. It's a gusher. <laughs> the stock price is inflated. Of course, stock loss is a complicated issue. Luckily, BP is deploying state-of-the-art technology to stem the flow of bad information. The company is actually buying up search terms on Google and Yahoo to try to get out in front of the story on the web. It's a junk shot. <laughs> so now when you do a Google search for oil spill, the first thing that comes up is a sponsored link by BP. And that brings you to their website, which has the most recent updates on the spill, like this one. BP is not aware of any reason which justifies the share price movement. <laughs> really? No reason at all you can think of? Want to play charades? 
world's worst charade player ever. Yes, apparently BP's greatest cleanup efforts are aimed at preventing fact balls from washing up on the beach. For instance, you know that really murky video that BP released three weeks after the accident that even then made it difficult to figure out the real extent of the spill? Well, it turns out they had an HD version the whole time that scientists say would have helped them understand the true scope of the leak if they had seen it, which they hadn't. And it kind of burns your ass because you know what they did release in HD? This commercial touting BP's cleanup efforts on beaches that are miraculously unoiled or tarballed. We know it is our responsibility to keep you informed and do everything we can so this never happens again. We will get this done. We will make this right. I swear to God, he talks to us like we're victims of domestic violence. <laughs> All right, BP, but you promise you'll never hit us again, right? <laughs> this time it'll be different, right? I can't quit you, big oil. <laughs> of course, that's BP CEO. Mm. Mm. I've been doing an awful lot of acting on tonight's program. Of course, that's BP CEO Tony Hayward showing you the other gaping hole BP has been working tirelessly to cap. It's the one right in the middle of his face. Hayward had become notorious for his gaffes, and what BP needed was a spokesman who could be more subtle. Doug Suttles is the chief operating officer for BP's exploration and production division. Mr. Suttles, good morning to you. Wow. <laughs> they didn't just get somebody that's more subtle. They got Mr. Suttles himself. And I know what you're thinking, he spells his name with two T's. That's how subtle he is. He, I'm not going to spell it with a B. What is he, Mr. Obvious? No, of course not. Now, Suttles is going to have a difficult job. For instance, BP has been denying the existence of giant oil plumes, unfortunately. The government confirmed that there is a large plume of oil that has been found thousands of feet below the surface. Vast fields of oil suspended as deep as 3,300 feet. There is more than one plume, and some are as wide as six miles. Six miles? What's that? It's only Rhode Island. <laughs> Mr. Suttles, you're on. Government scientists have confirmed that there are large plumes of oil under the surface of the Gulf. On May 31st, your CEO, Tony Hayward, said the oil is on the surface. There aren't any plumes. Is BP willing to admit that it was wrong? We haven't found any large concentrations of oil under the sea. It may be down to how you define what a plume is here. What? Th th what? <laughs> it depends on what your definition of plume is? I don't think you want to pull a Lewinsky-esque what's the meaning of is phraseology on an oil spill. It's six miles long. It's not even a plume anymore. It's like an oily six-mile thing. Now, I know BP's a little preoccupied right now. What this country needs is leadership. A hero. A handsome, charismatic hero. You had your chance. In 1993, I bought a patent from the Department of Energy for a centrifuge oil water separator technology, a technology that I believe had the potential to fight catastrophic oil spills. Hey, if you had a machine that cleans up disasters, why didn't you use it on 3,000 miles to Graceland? Boom! 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 Uh, Costner's in front of the House of Representatives in cockamamie thingamajiggy bought in 93. Let's hear a, a, a real politician's idea, a real senator's idea. 
Senator Grassley's solution calls for the deployment of beer brewing ingredients into the Gulf as a method of preventing the spread of oil. We are so f <laughs> Beer making ingredients into the Gulf of Mexico. What's the idea? Get the ocean so wasted it throws up the oil? He said if you put the yeast from making beer into this water, uh, it'll, in fact, it'll get, it'll get molecules and produce methane. That's actually not true. He double-checked it with a scientist. Really? You had to double-check that with a scientist? <laughs> you couldn't just know right away that was the stupidest thing you'd ever heard? So Costner wants to sort the molecules, oil from water. Grassley wants to inebriate the Gulf of Mexico. Anybody else? The nuclear option actually using some kind of nuclear warhead that would go down like a bunker buster and deflate the oil reserve to the point where it would literally stop itself. What could go wrong? <laughs> you know what? I'm in. Costner, saddle up. Cue the Aerosmith end credit song. Let's do this. I love hearing from listeners who write in to tell me about how this show positively impacts their lives. It reinforces the idea that what I'm doing really may be making a little bit of a difference. What I love even more is that it's the support of the listeners themselves which makes this show possible. If you appreciate the service this show provides, you can make individual donations or become a member and donate $5 a month or even save a couple of bucks by paying for a year in advance. Member support gives me the time it takes to produce 10 shows per month, and in return, members receive access to bonus audio and video content through members-only raw feeds. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Of all the news stories I've seen about the Gulf oil spill, this may be the saddest and the most infuriating. It was about some people who live in Gulfport Beach, Mississippi. Mississippi, by the way, and this is important for the story, Mississippi, turns out, is the most religious state in the country. Did you know that? Think about that. Think about being the most religious state in America. They're bordered by Tennessee, Alabama, and Louisiana, and they win the prize as the most religious state. Alabama is the Stephen Baldwin of the South. 82% of the people of Mississippi say that religion is very important in their life. And what else is very important in their life? Well, to the people in Gulfport Beach, Mississippi, it's the beach. And just how do people in the most religious state in the country protect themselves from oil spills? Hundreds of people joined hands on the beach in Gulfport to pray to protect the Mississippi shoreline from the oil. hi Did you catch that? Hundreds of people are lined up on the beach in Mississippi to pray the oil away. And I don't mean like we're going to throw out a thousand miles of boom and then we're going to pray. Or we're going to pray and then we're going to try to find an oil skimmer to go out there. Or we're going to pray and then we're going to build a big sand barge in front of to, to pray. No, they're just praying. That's it. They're not doing anything else. Because that's all it's going to take, I guess. Because God, I just... Hasn't gotten the word about what's happening in the Gulf of Mexico. Isn't that weird? See, I grew up really religious, really Christian. 
And the way that Christians try to scare you away from having teenage sex is to tell you that God is everywhere and he sees everything all the time. So you better not do anything dirty because God will know. And I just find it funny that here's a God who's aware of what my penis is doing 24 hours a day. But somehow he also can't keep an eyeball on the Gulf of Mexico. Or maybe God knows what's going on in the Gulf of Mexico, but he just doesn't know what to do about it. Should he save the beaches of Mississippi or shouldn't he save the beaches of Mississippi? Is that what's going on and you just need to let God know what he should do? Right now, the Mississippi Gulf Coast is, we're, we're dealing with the storm and this oil is, is going to affect us all. Wayne Rogers and his six-year-old son are part of this prayer chain that stretches across the Gulfport Beach. He says the oil spill has a direct effect on many families in our community, so it's important they are part of the worship. Did you catch that? The guy there on the beach in Mississippi said that this oil spill is going to have a direct effect on many of the families in the community, and that's why it's important they be part of this prayer chain. No, that's why it's important you make sure that you become informed. And this is the part that really gets me angry. Because these people act like the only way they can solve this problem is through voodoo and praying and some extraordinary intervention from above. When all that is really needed to prevent a horrible tragedy like this from occurring is responsible regulation and oversight from the government. This prayer chain was started by a young lady named Lacey McKern. She has lived on the coast for many years and could not bear the thought of it being destroyed by toxic oil. And your heart got to go out to this young lady. She couldn't bear the thought of her beach being ruined by toxic oil. So what did she do? Did she get informed? Did she work to organize her community to maybe elect somebody who would fight for responsible regulation of oil drilling and maybe also fight for alternative fuels so we don't have to keep raping the earth? No, that's not what she did. I wonder what the unbearable thought of her beaches being ruined led her to do. That is the same thought that led her and two of her friends to organize this prayer chain. There you go. And there is no more effective tool at keeping oil off the beaches than prayer chains. Some people say boom are good. Some people say oil sweepers. Some people say dispersants work. Some people say just good old scrubbing. And some people say you need good regulation in the first place to prevent it. But I don't know. The people in Mississippi, I think they got it right. Just go out on the beach, hold hands, and pray to the invisible man in the sky to come fix everything. And if that doesn't work, maybe you can get somebody who knows Aquaman to come. And maybe he could swim down and fix that leak. And if that doesn't work, maybe you could use the secret. And maybe the secret could attract some cleaner beaches. I saw it work on Oprah. A lady got a washer and dryer out of it. Why not try it? And the thing that kills me, at no point does it ever dawn on these people that what might actually help them is if they would have spent just a fraction of the time that they spent in their megachurch becoming aware of what was actually happening in their community and in their state and with their elected leaders and who was actually screwing them and who was actually going to look out for them. Yeah, if they would have spent just a little bit of time you don't have to go to college. Just maybe read a newspaper or peruse Wikipedia. Yeah, then you would have maybe known that the people your religion has been telling you to vote for for the last four decades have actually been the people who have been selling you out to big oil, among many other huge corporations. And how does this happen to the religious? Well, it's something called abortion. That's right. If you're a Christian, you can't vote for someone who's for a woman's right to choose. 
And that issue trumps everything. So what do you end up doing is voting for people who are tools of huge corporations who have nothing better to do than to screw you over and sell you out to them, including repealing the regulations that are supposed to prevent horrible oil spills from happening. And what is their solution to this problem that has really been caused by their over-reliance on religion? Their solution to this problem is more. Or religion. Although there have been unconfirmed reports of oil washing up on local beaches, Roger says prayer is what keeps him prepared. We're not ones that sit there and take it lying down. We're going to come and we're going to fight. And this is the way to do it right here. Oh, sure. I agree. That's a great way to fight, you know, by doing the exact opposite of fighting. But then on this news report, we got to hear from the girl who started this whole prayer chain on Facebook. So we want to protect our beaches, and we want God to come down here and just remove this oil and for it to dissipate. Okay, I know that went by pretty fast, so I'm going to play it for you again. So we want to protect our beaches, and we want God to come down here and just remove this oil and for it to dissipate. And no, they don't realize that what they are praying for is the tides to stop. You might as well pray for gravity to take a break while you move your piano out of your basement. They're asking for some pretty big league Old Testament style miracle action. And you just don't see that kind of thing anymore. Even Fox News hasn't been able to dig up any footage of talking snakes or a 40 day, 40 night floods. And I promise you, they're looking. I'll tell you what would be a miracle. For the reporter who did this piece to go back and interview these same people once that beach turns pitch black and slippery. I'm guessing you'd see the same thing you see when you ask a psychic a really specific question about your dead relatives. Just backpedaling. There are five words no religious leader or follower can live without. And they go like this. It doesn't work that way. Yes, when confronted with incontrovertible evidence that there is no God or at the very least no one that gives a crap about your prayers, what's the fallback position? It doesn't work that way. Yeah, I know it doesn't. I forgot. This is all part of God's plan to get rid of all those sea turtles he made. You know what? I've got a prayer too. Dear Lord, hear my prayer. If these slow but well-meaning people should stop looking to ancient fairy tales for solutions to their problems and start participating in earthly methods to protect themselves, their livelihoods, and our shared natural resources, please give me a sign. If they should stop electing Republicans and stapling tea bags to their cowboy hats and caring more about birth certificates than offshore rig safety, please give me a sign. If they should get on board with evolution and climate change and gay marriage, please, Lord, give me a sign. If it is your will that all these things come to pass, send us a sign, one unmistakable sign, something so incomprehensible and otherworldly that it can only be your handiwork, something just completely nuts. I call on you, God to break up the Gore's marriage before the Clintons. Amen.
angry about the BP spill. But my next guest is so furious, his skull is throbbing. Please welcome, live via satellite, the raging Cajun himself, James Carville. James, thanks so much for joining me again. Well, good to be here. Thank you. Last time you referred to me as what, a Louisiana albino bayou cobra. <laughs> the albino bayou cobra. Exactly. Yeah, yeah you know what? We, thank God we finally got a snake oil salesman that looks like a snake. <laughs> now, James, I know you're so angry that you've pulled all your hair out, clearly. Yeah. I am, too. BP uh, is a foreign company on our shores. They have shed our blood and our oil. They have raped our coastline. They've acted with malfeasance, possible criminal negligence. Clearly, the only person to blame is Barack Obama. How, how do we do it, James? How do we do it? <laughs> you know, You're angry at the again, president. Barack Obama, that, that's absolutely true. Barack Obama had absolutely... You ought to know who to get mad at. Get mad at all of these idiots that came in and said these companies could self-regulate themselves. Because you know what? They got, just like we know that, that Lehman Brothers could self-regulate itself, didn't we? We didn't know interfering bureaucrats in there. You're a good American. We didn't know interfering bureaucrats with uh, Bass Stearns. We didn't need that. We didn't know interfering bureaucrats with... James, with James, DC. I wish the, the oil was Lehman Brothers. In which case, right. if the oil was Lehman Brothers, it would just go away by now. God, no, somebody, no they would have bailed that out. Now, James, what... You've been critical of the president. By the way, welcome to the winning side. Now, what should Obama be doing in this moment of crisis? We know if this was Reagan, he would have stripped to his skivvies, put a knife in his teeth, gone down there, and punched that oil well shut. What the people know, James. Well, first, first of all, I think this president certainly has done some good things, but I, don't, I think we're slow to realize the magnitude of this. And every time we got an estimate, it was a thousand, it was five thousand, and they say it's twelve to nineteen thousand. And I think we're a little slow out of shoot. I think the president's come down there. I think he's much more involved in this. But I actually think there's a war out there. I think I think we're being invaded out there. So and, this and is a war. This is a war. Yes, it is. How, how should a president respond in a time of war? Should well, Barack I, Obama go down there in a flight suit? No, that should not in a flight suit. But send out. We don't. Right now, we don't know how many oil plumes they are. And sometimes the, 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 the scientists go out and say they're there. BP says they're not there. Noah says they're not there. Now Noah's sending the ship out to say where they're. Well, how are you going to fight the enemy if you don't know where the enemy is? And so a I lot say of these we why don't we just happen. bomb the whole thing? Well, that's what some people are saying. The Russians nuke it. So why don't we put a nuclear bomb 50 miles off the Louisiana coast? But then we'll get an army of mutant crabs. <laughs> Sometimes after you get into an argument or a confrontation with somebody, you can't help afterwards thinking of all the things you wished you'd said. You run it over and over in your mind, imagining the perfect comeback or the perfect way to have made your point. 
Well, last night, after the president's big Oval Office speech on the BP oil disaster, I had a version of that experience. I hadn't, of course, been in an argument with the president or anything. I just couldn't stop running tape in my head of what I wish that speech had been like, what I, what I wish he'd said. An Oval Office address is a priceless chance to get the nation to stop what it's doing, to stop every other TV show in the country, to get us all to pay attention all at once to this crisis and to what the president has to say about it. What if he had started off by saying, good evening? Okay, he actually did start off by saying good evening. But what if we, right after he said good evening, um, he said, I'm here to announce three major developments in the response to the BP oil disaster that continues right now to ravage the beloved Gulf Coast of the United States of America. I wish I could tell you that the first development is that BP has capped the well, stopped the leak. They haven't. They can't. They don't know how. And no one else does either. Their best hope is a relief well, which poses its own risks and challenges, and which, even in a best-case scenario, affords no relief until August. All the might of this, the mightiest nation on earth, and the combined expertise of the richest, most technologically ambitious corporations the world has ever seen cannot, it turns out, cannot cap an oil well when it breaks 5,000 feet deep in the ocean. It is something that mankind does not yet have the technological capability to fix. And that brings us to the first development in this disaster that I am announcing tonight. Never again will any company anyone be allowed to drill in a location where they are incapable of dealing with the potential consequences of that drilling. When the benefits of drilling accrue to a private company, but the risks of that drilling accrue to we the American people, whose waters and shoreline are savaged when things go wrong, I as fake president stand on the side of the American people and say to the industry, from this day forward, if you cannot handle the risk, you no longer will take chances with our fate to reap your rewards. Our nation's regulatory oversight of the oil industry has been a joke in many ways for decades, from the revolving door of industry apparatchiks taking supposed oversight jobs in the government in which they just rubber stamp the desires of the industry to which they were loyal, to, to energy industry lobbyists themselves being allowed in secret meetings to write our nation's energy policies. In, in light of the state of the Gulf right now, my fellow Americans, the details of how industry has infiltrated and infected the government that was supposed to be a watchdog protecting the American public from them, those details are enough to turn your stomach. But no detail tells you more about the corroding power of the industry against the interest of the American people than the simple fact that they have been allowed to drill in American waters without being forced to first prove that that drilling is safe. That will never happen again as long as I am fake president. When I announced in March that my administration's energy policy would include expanded offshore drilling, that policy change was predicated on our acceptance of the oil industry's assurances our acceptance of their assurances that they knew how to do that kind of drilling safely. They were lying. It cannot be done safely. Not when no technology exists to cap a blowout on the seafloor. Offshore drilling will not be expanded in American waters. The moratorium will be held firm and in place unless and until this industry conclusively demonstrates major advances in safety. 
Oil industry jobs are important, and I will work with industry to mitigate the impact on American families who survive on oil company paychecks. But in the 21st century, and in the name of the 11 oil workers who were killed when the Deepwater Horizon rig blew out, we will not play Russian roulette with workers' lives. And we will not play Russian roulette with irreversible national environmental disaster for the sake of some short-term income. The second major development I'm announcing tonight, my fellow Americans, concerns another oil industry assurance that we can no longer believe. The industry has long assured us that they were capable of handling spilled oil. In BP's own disaster response plan for the Gulf of Mexico, they claimed they were perfectly capable of containing and cleaning up up to 250,000 barrels of oil a day. That no significant amount of an oil spill of even that size would get to shore, would foul beaches, would kill wildlife, or destroy wetlands. They were lying when they gave that assurance. And the industry is lying when it says it takes seriously its responsibilities to contain and clean up disasters that they cause. The same low-tech, ineffective equipment and techniques are being used to respond to this oil disaster today that were used in the 1960s and 70s to respond to spills back then. That's because the industry has not invested in any new containment and cleanup technology in all of these decades. Because they haven't cared too much about it as an issue. And it shows. It shows both in the inept technology that we have to deploy, to contain, to clean up a spill like this, and it also shows in the lackadaisical, uncoordinated, unprofessional way this inept technology has been deployed by BP. Beaches have been fouled, wetlands have been destroyed, wildlife has been killed that should have been saved. Pensacola Bay in Florida, if properly boomed, should never have been breached by oil. Perdido Pass at Orange Beach, Alabama, should never have been breached by oil. Queen Bess Island, the Pelican Nesting Ground in Barataria Bay in Louisiana, Barataria Bay itself, none of these areas should have been breached by oil, even given the sad state of existing technology to stop it. But the fact that those areas were breached is BP's human error. And tonight, as fake president, I'm announcing a new federal command specifically for containment and cleanup of oil that has already entered the Gulf of Mexico, with a priority on protecting shoreline that can still be saved, shoreline that is vulnerable to oil that has not yet been hit. I've asked the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, to assist me in the diplomatic side of this, in soliciting, greenlighting, and expediting all international offers of help from experts in booming and skimming all over the world. We will bring in the best experts and the best equipment from anywhere on Earth to dramatically increase our efforts to get the oil out of the water and off the coast. Oil industry workers are often trained in booming and skimming. I'm hereby directing BP to fund booming and skimming crash academies for all available oil industry personnel anywhere in the world to radically overhaul what has been a haphazard, half-hearted, totally unacceptable protection effort, starting immediately. No expense will be spared and no excuses will be brooked. Even if the oil leak is capped today, the oil in the water will continue to surge toward shore for weeks, if not months. As fake president, I will personally issue a public update on cleanup and containment efforts every single day until this disaster is under control. And finally, the third development I have to announce to you tonight in the response to this oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico is about how we got here and how that will change. Every president in the modern era has complained that America must get off oil. Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and now I, fake President Obama, we have all intoned solemnly that we must get off oil. 
Now that we have at the hands of the oil industry experienced the worst environmental disaster in American history, the time for talk is over. The world is different now. Our country is different now. The scales have fallen from our eyes. People say we're not ready. They're right, we're not ready. We also weren't ready to fight in World War II before Pearl Harbor happened. But events forced that, forced that upon us and events have forced this fight upon us now. I no longer say that we must get off oil, like every president before me has said too. I no longer say that we must get off oil. We will get off oil and here's how. The United States Senate will pass an energy bill this year. The Senate version of the bill will not expand offshore drilling. The earlier targets in that bill for energy efficiency and for renewable energy sources will be doubled or tripled. If senators use the filibuster to stop the bill, we will pass it by reconciliation, which still ensures a majority vote. If there are elements of the bill that cannot procedurally be passed by reconciliation, if those elements can be instituted by executive order, I will institute them by executive order. The political cowardice that has kept politicians from doing right by this country, finally on energy, finally standing up to the oil industry, that cowardice has been drowned in oil on Queen Bess Island. There is a new reality in this country that has been forced on us by this disaster. As president, I pledge to you that the land and sea and livelihood and lives of the American people will be put first as we do everything that is humanly possible to stop this disaster. We will never again let the oil industry put America at this kind of risk. We will save what can still be saved that is directly at risk from the oil in the Gulf, and we will free ourselves as a nation once and for all from the grip of this industry that has lied to us as much as it has exploited us, as much as it has befouled us with its toxic affluent. The oil age, America, is over. If you are with me, let your senator know it. I will next speak to you about the BP oil disaster tomorrow with my first public update on the cleanup effort in the Gulf. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. Oh, and one more thing, I've also decided I'm not a White Sox fan anymore, I'm now a Red Sox fan, and I'm closing Guantanamo. Thank you, bye. So, in my mind, last night, that's what the president said. Which is why I will never run for anything, because I say stuff like, toxic affluent, and I get all weepy when I'm mad. Also, when I'm mad, I get blotchy. <laughs> and nobody likes a blotchy president. I woke up and wished that I was dead With an aching in my head I lay motionless in bed You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestoftheleft.com and use our Amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. From the Guardian of London, BP, you heard of them, right? They're hiving off, that's British for uh, spinning off, its Gulf of Mexico oil spill operation to a separate in-house business to be run by an American in a bid to isolate the, quote, toxic side of the company and dilute some of the anti-British feeling aimed at Chief Executive Tony Hayward, the company announced this week. I guess they announced it in Britain because I hadn't heard about this until then. But that's why this is news from 
outside the bubble, you see, ladies and gentlemen. Have I explained the premise again enough for you? The surprise announcement was made during a teleconference with City and Wall Street analysts in which Hayward attempted to shrug off the personal criticism, saying words could, quote, not break his bones. Okay, uh, Tony, let us know when you graduate to fourth grade, because we'll be looking forward to that. Um, BP has faced mounting anger. You know, responsibility for the leaking well and cleanup strategy will be placed in the hands of Bob Dudley. I inadvertently called him Ed last week, one of the country's uh, company's senior directors. Dudley is a U.S. citizen. He's been looking for a suitable role in the company since he was thrown out of Moscow in a battle with the Russian shareholders of a joint venture in the middle of 2008. Well, that looks good on anybody's resume. Hayward said the cleanup business would be run separately by Dudley with his own staff, but the finances and budget would come from the main BP group. We would want to check on that, wouldn't we? A company whose worldwide uh, pockets are pretty deep, but can then say, oh, our American company only has $4 and change, babe. The BP chief executive said the purpose of the split was to allow Dudley to concentrate on the Gulf uh, problem, while he, Hayward, starring in current TV commercials, and other directors were not distracted from keeping the main business on track, screwing up other parts of the... Oh, no. Hayward stressed, however, that his priority was sorting out all the wider fallout from the rig disaster, and he apologized repeatedly for the loss of lives. Everyone at BP is heartbroken by this event, he said. Hiving it off to Bob Dudley, ladies and gentlemen. Now, uh, you know that... Oh, that's news from outside the bubble, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. You know that the uh, oil has started to wash up on uh, the white beaches of the white sand beaches of Florida. Both uh, Governor Haley Barber and of uh, Mississippi and Senator Bill Nelson of Florida spent uh, precious airtime on the Sunday Act shows this week, uh, saying, "Well, the mo- most serious damage to us has been in the tourism, because people hear these news stories and they, they don't come down." And uh, so. By merely saying what I just said, I, I'm contributing to the problem uh, that there there are tar balls being found on the beaches of uh, the uh, Panhandle of Florida right now. So uh, as I as say, I'm acknowledging that I'm doing some damage, and uh, I want to do my best with a uh, suggestion to uh, help remedy the situation. One thing all kids love is gloop. So why take them on a road trip to a vacation paradise that's got no gloop? When you can take them to BP Attraction's hottest new destination, Char Beachopolis. It's beach fun like you've never had it before. Ah, ah. Uh, uh, gloopy! How's the water, kids? It's sunshine, sea breeze, and plenty of gloop. Hey, dude, I'm surfing on sand. Way gloopy. So fill up the car, pack the whole family in, and take them on a once-in-a-lifetime trip. Because Tar Beachopolis has to close when the gloop goes. Tar Beachopolis, Florida's new play place, where the fun never slops. Gloop make a tank, toddy wing, benzene, and other volatile compounds. Do not inhale. Ventilator sold separately.
did not want you to see any of it. The tar balls washing ashore in Florida, the oil-soaked birds, the wrecked beaches and wetlands. In our fourth story on the countdown, BP hoping all along the ocean would simply wipe away the evidence. Because, according to the CEO, Tony Hayward, the underwater gusher wreaking havoc in the Gulf and heading for the Atlantic is very tiny in relation to a very big ocean. Tonight, as you will see now in the graphic pictures that have escaped censorship in the Gulf, it is in fact Mr. Hayward who is very tiny in relation to an ocean of images. Without regard for the 11 men who lost their lives on the Deepwater Horizon rig, the fishermen who lost their livelihood, or the ecosystem on the verge of being wiped out, Mr. Hayward instead lamenting the time-consuming effort to plug the hole, reportedly asking colleagues, what the hell did we do to deserve this? Then applauding his company's efforts, considering how big this has been, very little has got away from us. When asked if he was concerned about his own job security, Mr. Hayward shrugged, I will be judged by the nature of the response. Here now, at the end of day 46, a look back at BP's response. It wasn't our accident, but we are absolutely responsible for the oil. This is not our accident, but it's our responsibility. This wasn't our accident. This was not our accident. This was not our drilling rig. It was not our equipment. It was not our people, our systems, or our processes. This was Transocean's rig. Their systems, their people, their equipment. Everything we can see at the moment suggests that the overall environmental impact of this will be very, very modest. On East Grand Terre, a Louisiana barrier island, a heartbreaking discovery today. We're going to fight it, subsea, on the surface, and on the shore. It sounds like you're, re you're referring to, to Churchill, who I know you like to quote. The fact is that we are winning the battle on the surface. We have contained the oil in the offshore. There is today no oil on the shore. There is no oil forecast to be on the shore. We are containing the spill in the far offshore. And very little of the oil is getting to the shoreline. Very, 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 very little oil is finding it its way to the shore. We've actually done quite a good job of containment in the offshore. There hasn't been a black tide. Here, where the thick oil is lapping the shoreline, birds are trapped, dying in the ooze. That's your oil. I know. I'm gutted. I'm absolutely devastated. Clearly, uh, the defences of the shore have been breached. It's widely reported that what is happening in the meantime is that 5,000 barrels a day of oil is, is coming out of this well. Is that figure right? Uh, the answer is no one knows with any precision. It's and because you can't measure uh, what's coming out uh, at the seabed. No one knows what the rate is because no one's actually measured it. But you know, it's, it's almost impossible to get a precise number. There is no accurate way of estimating this, I'm afraid. Today, in our fifth story, three separate research scientists telling National Public Radio, using calculations based on new video of the gushing pipe, they estimate that the rate is 10 times faster, at least 56,000 barrels a day, possibly as many as 84,000. Now the question is, what is the oil cleanup doing to the workers? This after nine fishermen working to clean up the oil spill fell ill. We believe maybe it's from the dispersal. Whether it was anything to do with dispersants and oil, whether it was food poisoning or some other reason for them being ill, you know, there's a food poisoning is clearly a big issue. It won't stop such deep water exploration. I don't believe it should. In the same way as Apollo 13 did not stop the space program. There's no one who wants this thing over more than I do. You know, I'd like my life back. 
you all need to know that I am absolutely determined that we will win this and we will come out of this stronger and better as a company because of it. Well, everything we can see at the moment suggests that the overall environmental impact of this will be very, very modest. As you heard, 500 to 1,000 square miles of oil on the surface around where the Deepwater Horizon was. A witness account this afternoon. And it's headed toward shore somewhere. Thanks for listening, everyone. So in this show, I just wanted to take a moment and harken back a little bit to, uh, again, talk about things that happened during that uh, big liberal conference in Washington, D.C., which now seems already like an eternity ago, but it was only a couple of weeks. Besides the conference itself, I'm sure that you heard me talking about uh, the fact that the Young Turks were sponsoring a protest and that I was helping to kind of promote it. And then at the very end, I did just the tiniest bit of help, uh, you know, with uh, brainstorming, organizing, things like that for, for the event. And then, of course, I was there. And so I just wanted to give you the follow-up on what exactly happened and the details on the fact that the protest was not actually the end of a campaign to protest, but the very beginning of a campaign. So just to recap, the, the whole idea was... Uh, and it's, it's kind of comical. We, we uh, joked about it while we were there, talking about how, you know, if you compare, uh, like, the teabagger crowd, they have the most generic protests of all time. You know, no taxes, no government, no bailouts. And, and you know, like, what are you talking about? Like, what's the right way to do it? What's the wrong way? Are, are there limits to what you're saying? Are, you know, are you just shouting catchphrases and you don't know, really know what they mean? So that, that's one side of the debate. The other side is what Jenk came up with for this protest is seriously, in all likelihood, the most specific protest I've ever heard of and possibly like in the history of protests. So we were set about with the task of protesting Goldman Sachs took $13 billion through a backdoor bailout because AIG made a bet with Goldman Sachs and that bet, you know, went bad for AIG. So they, when they were going bankrupt, couldn't pay off Goldman Sachs. So when the government put money into AIG to prevent it from going under, then AIG sent the debt that they owed to Goldman Sachs for a hundred cents on the dollar instead of at the, you know, accurate market value. And we demand that Goldman Sachs give back the $13 billion because in normal economic circumstances, they wouldn't have gotten that much money. Hey, hey, ho, ho, and repeat. You know, it's like, it was insane, but uh, <laughs> but accurate and, uh, and a, not a bad uh, position to take. So um, that was just lots of fun. <laughs> the fact that the, the protest was uh, as incredibly specific as it was, but that's, that's the story. That's what the pro pro protest is about. And so now, Jank, uh, as promised, announced his uh, quote-unquote magical protest idea at the event. 
details on all of this, by the way, is at theyoungturks.com slash Goldman Give It Back. You can see a video of the protest and it describes everything. But I'll tell you that the, uh, the exciting idea he had is actually that he recognized that this could be just the very beginning of the idea of the protest and that with the help of kind of the collective mind of everyone who, you know, listens to and supports his show and this show and the whole progressive movement and anyone who catches on about this idea can actually go in and they've set up set up a wiki for protest ideas, um, you know, ideas for how to pressure Goldman Sachs, uh, uh, places where we can put the names of you know the the office buildings they have with the addresses names and pictures of the employees obviously not to go to their house not to hassle them not to do anything illegal but just so that their names are out there their businesses are out there and so people in public can go and say like hey give us our money back and you kind of keep doing that over and over and it builds and builds hopefully until finally they relent at least that's the idea. So that wiki, along with all the details, again, at theyoungturks.com slash goldmangiveitback. And frankly, is a really interesting idea that I've never heard of anyone doing before. It's kind of tapping into the, the hive mind, the you know, crowdsourcing in a way. But it's just a recognition that you know, a really small group of people, you know, they could come up with some good ideas. They could maybe get a few things done. But collectively... You know the way the way Wikipedia was produced. Uh, you open it up to the public, and you get a flood of information, a flood of ideas that you never would have gotten before using any kind of a closed system rather than an open system like that. So that's the update on that. I'm going to keep it short. I want to thank a couple of members. Uh, William S. signed up for his monthly membership back on February 13th and has been sticking with the show ever since. Thank you very much, William. And uh, Diane S. signed up for uh, her membership on April 2nd and went ahead and paid for a year in advance. Huge thanks to Diane, William, and every single member that helps make this show possible. Everyone can help make the show possible, of course, just by doing the simplest thing, which is just to tell everyone you know about it, keep spreading the word. It really, really helps. If you're interested in staying connected to the show between episodes, uh, join up and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, interesting things are said there on occasion. For details on the show, including links to all the sources and music used, all of that is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the support of members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you wanna meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor